Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's Friday, December the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Just before we start today, it is that time of year when we gather the Irish Times politics crew together for our Ask Me Anything podcast. We are looking forward to tackling whatever questions you might have for us, but you will need to get them into us by next Wednesday, which is December the 16th. And you can send those questions to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. You can, of course, send them in writing, but we are particularly keen to hear your dulcet tones. So if you record them as a voice memo on your phone and mail them to us, they will probably have a better chance of getting answered. So remember, that is politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And please send us your questions by Wednesday the 16th. Now, I have a few questions of my own today, Dennis Stunt. And what the hell is happening with Brexit? Well, the uh, negotiators are talking. We're, we've burst through the, I don't know how many deadlines now, and and we go from one cliffhanger to the next. Uh, On Wednesday evening, Boris Johnson met Ursula von der Leyen in Brussels. They both agreed afterwards that no new ideas had come out of the meeting and that they remained very far apart, but that the negotiating team should continue to negotiate at least until Sunday. And then that on Sunday, they would decide uh, whether there was a basis to carry on talking. So Sunday is not really even itself a deadline. And uh, and since then, both sides have been saying that no deal now looks like the likeliest outcome. Boris Johnson said it in London, Ursula von der Leyen said it, and a number of the European Union leaders said it this morning after their summit. And uh, and so the, the negotiations carry on. The same issues, fisheries, the level playing field of guarantees of fair competition and governance or how to uh, enforce the, the agreement. Those are the three issues, but they seem to have started to zero in on one in particular, a part of the level playing field, which is known as the ratchet clause. And here's actually a clip of Boris Johnson yesterday evening uh, talking essentially about that very thing. It was put to me that this was kind of a bit like twins and uh, the UK is one twin, the EU is another. And if the EU decides to have a haircut, then the UK has got to have a haircut or else face punishment or the EU decides to buy an expensive handbag. The uh, if the EU, EU decides to buy an expensive handbag, then the UK has to buy an expensive handbag too, or else face uh, tariffs and, and punishment. And, and clearly that's not a sensible way to proceed. It's unlike any other uh, free trade deal. A rather tortured metaphor there, Dennis. It's not a, it's not a, a relationship between twins that uh, I've seen in, um, among any twins I know. But regardless of that, the, 
the point at issue, it does seem to have become narrower, doesn't it? It focuses in, as you say, on governance and a very specific part of the governance question. Yeah, so what uh, what both sides have agreed is that uh, they will maintain their current level of standards on things like environmental protection, consumer rights, employment rights. And so uh, it's a big concession in a way by uh, Britain in terms of its vision of Brexit to say we are we have agreed that we are not going to lower any of these standards because part of the fear in uh, in Brussels had always been that uh, Brexit Britain would become Singapore on Thames, that they'd make a bonfire of regulations. So basically they've committed to not doing that. But the Europeans then said, but what happens if we, the Europeans, decide to improve our standards, say, on the environment or employment law? And the gap opens up so that then in a few years' time, even though we started at the same place, there's now uh, you've got an unfair competitive advantage. What can we do about that? And they initially suggested that the two sides could negotiate and as they each lifted their standards, that would form the new baseline. And Britain rejected that. So then the Europeans came up with an idea which would be that if, say, this gap opened up, so the Europeans uh, improved their standards and Britain doesn't, that Europe would then have the right to impose lightning tariffs on the specific goods that are affected by this unfair competition as they saw it. And what the British have been saying is they've been saying a few things. First of all, they claim this is a new demand, which uh, arrived in late in the day. The Europeans dispute this. They also then say it's unfair because it's one sided and that the way it's designed would be that uh, only the Europeans could use it. And they also complain that if the Europeans slap tariffs on them, normally what happens then is that you slap tariffs on the other side, but that this would be excluded. And so uh, they've been complaining about this. The uh, This morning, uh, Friday, uh, at the end of the European summit, Ursula von der Leyen referred to this and she said that she made clear that, in fact, it would be reciprocal. She said this will work vice versa, as she put it. And so that could be an important move in terms of unblocking this, because uh, if this, uh, you know, if if the sanctions are not automatic. So, if, for example, you you go to some arbitration panel which has an independent chair, and there's a process by which you can go to it and you can appeal and you can slow this pro- this business down, and also if it can work both ways, then that might be something that Britain would find more acceptable. There's a number of things that strike me about that. One is. Could they not have been talking about this a lot earlier than just with three weeks to go? It seems like a fairly, fairly core issue. Well, I think, you know, it was something that did come up earlier. Because, I mean, actually, initially what the Europeans, like until the summer, what the Europeans were demanding was what they call dynamic alignment, that they would agree to have the same standards, but also that Britain would have to align with any improvements in standards. You know, they'd automatically have to take on all the new European laws and regulations. And the British said that's entirely unacceptable. We're leaving the European Union to get away from this kind of thing. So the Europeans then dropped that demand. So in a way, this is the latest iteration of a demand that's taken different forms throughout the whole uh, the whole process. And whatever about standards and regulatory standards, does it also apply equally to state aid, for example, if Britain decides to support certain industries? Well, there, there's a separate uh, sort of, they appear to have agreed to a separate uh, system for state aid, in ter- because basically what will happen with state aid is that Britain will set up its own 
authority, which will uh, be an independent regulator to regulate state aid. So what I think they're going to agree, if they agree anything, is that uh, the two sides agree to certain principles on state aid. And Britain would say these are the terms of our independent regulator. And so there would be an independent procedure. And then if something happens that there's a dispute that, say, the, the British think that it's unfair that the Europeans are supporting some company or vice versa, that they can go to an arbitration uh, council. There is one issue, though, where state aid is concerned, which is that the Europeans want to exempt uh, all supranational uh, uh, subsidies, like, for example, their big coronavirus uh, rescue package, which is 750 billion uh, euros. They want to exempt that from state aid rules because they say state aid rules apply only to national governments, to member states. And But they don't want to exempt all of the money that Britain is spending on uh, as a result of coronavirus. So this, again, the British see as unfair, and there is also an ongoing uh, dispute about exactly how that would work out. I think that's probably uh, you know more open to resolution than the first one. And then, then to come back to what Ursula von der Leyen was saying, uh, was saying this morning, if she has addressed one of the problems which the British have with that, in other words, she has said that this reciprocal process is reciprocal. It's not just a, a unilateral power on the on the EU side to impose these tariffs in these circumstances. Presumably, then that then just leaves the question of the process by which an independent arbitration would take place and who who would be making that arbitration. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a sort of a, you know, I think the British do have a. a, a problem in principle with the idea that uh, they would in some way have to shadow these uh, you know these regulations the example they would often give would be say the working time directive and if uh, you know that limits the number of hours that anybody's allowed to work in the European Union if the European Union were to reduce dramatically the number of hours you're allowed to work and that in that that would then some way in some way make some businesses in Britain entirely uh, you know unsustainable then they feel as if that's just a lever that Europe could use against them in a way that would be unfair so I think they want to have some limits and they also want to have a question of proportionality and they're also concerned about what they call cross retaliation so in other words if you offend me in car manufacturing but car manufacturing doesn't uh, matter so much to you, I will then offend you on aviation, which does. So, you know, that that you can strike at different parts of each other's economy. So I think, you know, so I, th- I think that, you know, they, the British don't like it in principle, but they're probably open to some sort of arrangement. But then the details of that, uh, you know, are important economically, but also then how it's designed is important in terms of uh, sovereignty and the and the idea that Boris Johnson will be able to say we are protecting our sovereignty with this deal and we're regaining our sovereignty. And as I understand it, the arbitration process would would address the question of whether the, the divergence which has taken place um actually has any effect on the market or the trade trade in goods between between the EU and the UK. Yes, you'd have to have some. So basically, the decisions to be made would be, uh, you know, uh, does it actually have that effect? How big is the effect? What is the appropriate response? What is the possible, you know, is there some way of sorting it out, but, you know, short of imposing sanctions? How much of this is about the sort of nitty gritty which we're talking about here? And how much of it is more about something which you've talked about previously uh, on this podcast, which is a fundamental misunderstanding or chasm between the two sides in understanding what Brexit actually is, that on the British side, it's an assertion of sovereignty and that underpins 
their position on these and other issues like fishing as well. And there has been a, a, an unwillingness or an inability to understand or to fully come to terms with that on the European side. I think that's one way of putting it. But another way would be to say that actually the two sides have uh, have, have particular things they are very, very jealous of protecting. So on the British side, it is this idea of sovereignty, the point of Brexit being to get away, and also this idea that we are negotiating as sovereign equals, even though they're obviously the smaller party. In On the European side, it is the single market. The single market is the European Union. I mean, it's the one part of it uh, that everybody agrees on. So even Poland and Hungary and all these other states that don't even agree on basics of the rule of law uh, with the rest of the European Union, uh, even they completely buy into the single market. So that anything that, uh, you know, that undermines the integrity of the single market is just a price not worth paying as far as the Europeans are concerned. And so I think, you know, the, you know, the British don't get that exactly. They don't see why, look, you know, if your single market is so strong, why are you so uh, worked up about making a little exception to it here or there? But the whole point of it is it's a whole sort of a, an ecosystem of laws and rules and you can't make exceptions. It's a legalistic uh, you know, thing. And, then, and obviously the Europeans take a legalistic approach to the negotiations and to this arrangement. The two sides are also very different in personality terms. You may have seen this photograph of uh, uh, Boris Johnson and David Frost uh, arriving at the Berlaymont and you had Ursula von der Leyen and Michel Barnier on the other side. And uh, and so Boris Johnson uh, and David Frost in kind of rather baggy, ill-fitting suits, David Frost's tie only going halfway down his chest on the one side and, you know, like really sort of, uh, you know, both looking kind of rapscallion a little bit. And then uh, on the other, you had these incredibly elegant, thin, uh, you know, perfectly turned out figures of uh, von der Leyen and and Barnier. And there's a similar uh, you know, difference in approach that Barnier is, is sort of Cartesian. He's uh, you know, he, he's uh, extremely cool, detail, you know, in full command of detail, has been negotiating you know, for decades, and his whole team are terribly experienced. And on the British side, you've got David Frost, who rose to the rank of British ambassador to Denmark and then went and ran the uh, Scotch Whiskey Association and he's now been brought back. And then uh, his number two or the other most important figure in it is a guy called Oliver Lewis, who was on a, a functionary on the Vote Leave campaign. These are not experienced people. Uh, and so I think there's a really big contrast between the two sides. That's uh, That's sort of fascinating. We were always told that at some point this process would be taken out of the windowless, airless room in which Michel Barnier and David Frost and their teams were negotiating and would have to go to the politicians. Um, now, for the moment, it seems it's been put back into the airless room for a couple of days, but at where do we stand on that now? At what point then do the politicians come in? And which politicians are they? Is it Ursula von der Leyen or is it Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron? I think it's Ursula von der Leyen. I don't I mean, you know, the, the British side have always wanted to uh, to bring in the European leaders, particularly Merkel and Macron. They think Macron is the most difficult customer in terms of being the most hard line. And they also just always think that Merkel is going to sort out their problems. And she is obviously, you know, the biggest figure in Europe. And she's also, uh, Germany is currently chair chairing the European Council. So she would have standing to do it. The Europeans have been reluctant to do it, I think, for a few reasons. One is that they're uh, negotiating 
structure uh, has worked for them. It has also kept unity. And the fact is, on some of these issues, like, say, fishing, uh, the French want something in particular, which the other Europeans may be asked to cough up to help, uh, to provide. So just doing a bilateral deal with Macron uh, it wouldn't work in the way that uh, it was possible to do a deal last year with uh, Leo Varadkar because the Irish issue was the only issue left. So that's just not the case this time. I think there are two other reasons. One is that, you know, uh, in Britain, they often lament the fact that because uh, trade negotiations have always been a competency of the European Union, that their own trade expertise or their expertise in trade negotiations has disappeared over the decades. And, uh, you know, because they just didn't have to do any trade negotiations. But the same is actually true of the European capitals. They don't have trade negotiators. They're all in Brussels. And so they don't actually have the capacity uh, at the best of times, really, to get into very detailed trade negotiations. But that capacity has been further diminished by the coronavirus pandemic because every national government is so focused on dealing with that. And so that has seen actually over the past few months, uh, the European Commission taking on more and more responsibility, which suits its, its purposes very well, because it likes that position. And, you know, and so, uh, so it suits both parts in a way, it suits both the Commission and the member states to have the Commission in the lead on this. Now, of course, it always has to be signed off by the European leaders and Barnier is in constant contact with them. And this afternoon, for example, uh, he'll be briefing the uh, the European ambassadors, the ambassadors of the European Union from the member states. So, you know, so it's uh, so I think it, it, it's that's the reason why it hasn't got to this point. The British still many of them think that a phone call between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron could do the trick. And Boris Johnson likes to think, you know, he enjoys personal diplomacy more than this bureaucratic negotiating system. But at the same time, I'm not actually sure that it would really help. And I think it actually, there's a risk it could make things even worse. Indeed, and it's been suggested for years on the on the Brexiteer side in the UK that European division would be the UK's opportunity. And that has not as yet proven to be the case. However, the sort of critique that we heard, certainly out of the British media over the last 10 days or so, that goalposts were being moved or landing pads were being altered by primarily by France, but also by other European countries. The Netherlands, I think, was mentioned as well, possibly Denmark too. Is there any truth in that at all? I think the thing is that because what happens is that, you know, the negotiators, especially when they get into these periods of intense negotiation, they, uh, you know, obviously they will go to the limit of their negotiating mandate and possibly edge slightly over uh, the limit of it just to try to make a deal. And then they go back and check in with the member states to say, hold on a second, you're, uh, you're getting a bit too generous here. And then what happened appears to be that the British side thought that when Barnier was away and they were dealing with this woman, Stephanie Rizzo, who's the deputy head of cabinet to to Ursula von der Leyen, they thought that they were getting somewhere and that they had basically agreed on what happened with the level playing field. And then Barnier went and met the uh, the member states and they said... No. And uh, I mean, the, the flaw, of course, in a lot of the, the British spin on this is that they're presenting it as a French plot uh, in league, you know, Barnier in league with the French. And yet the, the, the two countries you mentioned, uh, the Netherlands and Denmark, who are also very much in that hardline camp, they are uh, the most Anglophile countries in Europe. 
and have traditionally been the closest allies, you know, and so, uh, you know, so it's just the whole thing doesn't add up. I mean, the fact is that uh, the European Union, its main, uh, you know, purpose in the negotiations is to defend the single market. Uh, so they're prepared to offer zero tariff, zero quota access to that market, but only on terms that don't undermine it. And uh, meanwhile, on another part of the playing field, I suppose, this week, we did see some movement and some success, some progress in the negotiations over the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol and this very thorny issue of the law-breaking legislation, the Internal Market Bill being introduced in the House of Commons, a, a taxation bill as well. And that was resolved. And and you write in your column this week about how so many of these things can be viewed as a Rorschach test. You can see those uh, being good or being bad, depending on how you think things are going to go. And uh, on the one hand, this was a success for negotiation and a sign that negotiations could be successful. On the other hand, it could be seen as paving the way for a no deal. Yeah. So uh, one interpretation, which would be, say, my instinctive interpretation, is that this is a good thing. First of all, it shows, as you say, that they can uh, deal with difficult issues. Secondly, it removes an obstacle in the way of a deal being done because the Europeans were not going to do the deal as long as the uh, law-breaking clauses were uh, you were still there. And thirdly, I think that uh, on the issue of governance, although you know, just because the uh, the British have removed these clauses doesn't mean they're not still lawbreakers in the eyes of uh, some on the European side. Nonetheless, it's as if they're kind of on furlough. And so when you're making the argument that you need to kind of trust them a little bit, then uh, you you at least don't have these uh, clauses sitting there uh, staring at you. The other argument, though, is that what it does is it clears the way for a no-deal outcome because the big problem or one of the big problems with doing no deal was that you would have this uh, these clauses undermining the Good Friday Agreement. And Joe Biden, coming into power in January, had said a number of times that this was the issue of Brexit that, that he is concerned about. And so Boris Johnson would have had to have his first conversation with Joe Biden in office saying, uh, you know, uh, with Joe Biden saying, why have you wrecked the Good Friday Agreement by having this no-deal Brexit. So that now, if uh, he has a no-deal Brexit, he can just say, uh, most unfortunate, I wasn't able to do a deal, but you know, these Europeans are very difficult when it comes to trade negotiations. And so that's a very different conversation from the one if he hadn't uh, done the uh, done the business on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think you can look at it both ways. It gives him a bit of leeway in that, you know, or it, you know, it removes an obstacle uh, in terms of good relations with Joe Biden. But I think it still also does remove an obstacle in the way of doing a deal. And then, of course, the other thing that happened this week, Dennis, was, I suppose, uh, increased preparations in the eventuality of a no deal to address things like aviation and transport issues, which could be completely catastrophic if there's nothing in place on the 1st of January. Yeah, so basically what the Europeans said this week, they, you know, the Commission had been under pressure from the member states for a long time to say, what are we going to do uh, You know, if there is no deal? Give us um, you know, some indication. And so what the Europeans said is on things like aviation, uh, on uh, you know, so, so safety of aircraft going uh, to and fro, on issues like hauliers and, uh, and using the roads, and then on fisheries, that they would have some kind of temporary arrangement. So they would do it unilaterally, but it would assume that Britain would do the same. So in a sense, you could have these you know, uh, twin uh, unilateral uh, arrangements uh, for, for everything, but they're really very bare bones. They would last mostly for six months. And then you'd have to try to negotiate uh, 
more permanent arrangement. And But it would certainly still mean that there would be lots of chaos if you did have a no-deal outcome. So the next non-deadline deadline is on Sunday. Past history suggests to me that that's not really going to be a deadline and things will continue further, Dennis. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, unless nothing at all happens in terms of progress, I would say the most likely thing would be that uh, there would be uh, uh, some kind of meeting between uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson, either on the phone or in person, and that then the most likely thing would be that they say that uh, big differences remain, it's all extremely difficult, time is running out, but nonetheless that the negotiators are going to continue. And I, you know, I, But I think, in a way, you do have to have something happening uh, in the negotiating room over the next uh, 42 or 78 hours, or 48 or 72 hours just to get uh, you know, something going on. And it sounds just from what von der Leyen was saying this morning as if you might at least start to be able to approach this issue of the ratchet clause and uh, get some kind of progress on it, even if you didn't find your way through it completely. And obviously they're working on other issues like fisheries in parallel. So if you were able to get progress, maybe resolution on one, and progress on another, then I think you're heading into a a reasonably good place. Dennis, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. If you want to get in touch with us, we are always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.